The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Nick Kidwell, I am the senior pastor here at Valley Creek Church. Uh, as Tom said, if this is your first time with us this morning, oh, I'm glad I caught that. You guys would have all been staring at my messed up collar. If this is your first time with us this morning, um, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, and as Tom said, we'd love to get to meet you and introduce ourselves to you down at the welcome table following the service. Uh, I'm so grateful for this church. I was just reflecting uh, earlier this week on the example that this church sets in service and love and devotion to the Lord. Just this week, we had men's Bible studies, we had youth girls Bible studies, we had a bridge course on Wednesday, we had a Wednesday morning Bible study, Thursday night we had Valley Creek U, and over the weekend we had another members, new members course uh, at that as well. And this is all thanks to your effort and your love for the Lord and a desire to see others grow and be built up into him. So thank you for your service. It's a joy to serve alongside of you all. Well, this morning, we are continuing on in our Matthew series. Last week, Andy reminded us of the far surpassing value and worth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ which secures for us entry into his glorious kingdom. Verses 51 and 52 of chapter 13, which we didn't dive into last week, has Jesus saying to his disciples, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Now I will say their answer is probably a little dubious. I still don't think they understood all these things. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. The scribes in Israel, among other things, were teachers of the law, interpreters of the law. And so what Jesus is saying there is that now his disciples would serve as the scribes, if you will, trained for the kingdom. They have the fullness of the revelation of God to make known to the world. The full fullness of the treasure has been revealed. And that's what Andy was helping us understand last week. Not just the old treasure of the Old Testament, but the new treasure as well. Full revelation, both old and new, all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And so at this point in Matthew, Jesus has been preparing his disciples to be these, again, new metaphorical scribes. He's taught them how to be members of his kingdom and how to live in light of that. He's revealed to them the mission that they are being sent on. And he's also made known to them the rejection and the persecution that they will face at times. We're now just a few chapters away from a major turning point in Matthew's gospel, where the disciples will finally put all of the pieces together. Peter will proclaim rightly that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in fact, in our message next week, we're going to see rumblings of this as well, them finally starting to get this. And after that point, Jesus will begin to reveal to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. From chapter 16 on, it's a steady march towards the cross. 
But even before that, we start to get foreshadowing of the opposition and the persecution that Christ promised would come. And in our passage this morning, we read of one particularly dark and tragic episode, the death of John the Baptist. So please, if you would, turn with me now, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 13, where we'll be reading verses 53 to chapter 14, verses 12. So we're catching the end of chapter 13 and going into chapter 14. Before we read, I always like to pray because we need the Spirit of God to understand these truths. So please pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we will be confronted with this morning, there is darkness in this world. There's darkness in our own hearts Lord, and even for those of us who have come to see the light of Jesus Christ, there still is further corners of darkness within us. And we just ask that you use your word this morning to dispel all darkness, to continue to sanctify us in truth. And we just pray, Lord, that the light of Jesus Christ would shine forth within our hearts and our minds and into this world. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 1353. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead, that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This is a heavy story. We get here two accounts of rejection. First, Jesus' rejection by those in his hometown of Nazareth, and then the rejection of John the Baptist. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning 
considering the story of John the Baptist, but the passage about Christ in Nazareth is thematically linked and sets this up for us. We see Jesus, he's returning back to Nazareth where those who knew him from childhood are confronted with the miraculous things he's been doing and the authoritative speaking he has been doing and they're confused. They say, is this not Mary's son? Is this not the little boy that we used to see run around here? Is this not the carpenter's son? How possibly could this man have such wisdom and power and we read then in verse 57 that the end of their questioning led them not to know Christ but to take offense at Christ they didn't like that someone they knew so well could be greater than they were their pride stood in the way of them seeing Jesus for who he was well Jesus recognizes their hardness towards him and he draws attention to the fact that This is, in fact, the pattern of how the prophets have been treated throughout time. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, Jesus says. Meaning, it's often those who more than anyone should have honored and revered the messengers of God that, in fact, reject him. And because of this hardness of heart, Jesus decides to move on. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He refuses to throw pearls before swine, as he tells his disciples elsewhere. Now this is a mild taste of what's to come for Jesus, but the story that follows of John the Baptist foreshadows that what lies ahead for Jesus is not just rejection or social exclusion, but ultimately execution. Just as Jesus had promised his disciples that the road ahead will not be easy, we see this beginning to play out. The heat is increasing and the war is being waged. As I considered both of these stories, the one word that kept coming into my mind was darkness. Particularly as it applies to the story of John the Baptist. Here you have this servant of God. A messenger of truth whose bloody head is delivered on a platter in the middle of a birthday celebration. That's dark. And unfortunately, as shocking as this story is, it's not shocking enough. Because we're accustomed to the dark. We live in a world that groans under the weight of sin. Wars rage, murders happen, deceit, corruption, and scandal flood our news feeds, and every day we face the challenges of the sin within our own hearts and in the hearts of those around us. Scripture describes all of this as darkness, because all of these things result from rebellion against God, who we are told in the Scriptures is light. Therefore, to be in rebellion against God and separated from him is to be in the dark. In fact, we are told that all of us, in our sin, apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, are citizens of the domain of darkness. Sin thrives in the dark. There's a reason people often awake the next day after a night of reckless abandon and suddenly feel shame for how they've behaved. The light of day brings 
fresh perspective. And that's what our God does. Our God, though he could have, has not abandoned humanity. The passage we read in Nehemiah over and over again, God is offering extensions of mercy and grace from the beginning of time, from man's first fall into darkness. God has been unfolding a plan to shine a healing light into the world. The Gospel of John, that's not John the Baptist, but that's the Apostle John, captures this when it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now that is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is that true light. And he has come to shine into the darkness. Yet, the Apostle John goes on, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is the history of mankind. Ever since the garden, ever since our first step into sin, each and every one of us has stubbornly been seeking to hide from God in the darkness. And when we look at the history of humanity, and even the history of God's people as shown in the scriptures, it's littered with dark, dark stories. And people who left to their own devices want nothing to do with the light. We read a passage, or we read this passage earlier from Nehemiah. Again, the people are confessing how they've repeatedly killed and ignored God's messengers, the prophets. Jesus reminds us of this rejection when he experiences the rejection in Nazareth. And then we get this vivid example of the war that darkness wages against the light and the death of John the Baptist. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, this war that wages that we might be equipped to fight the darkness that can remain in our own hearts and be prepared to stand against the darkness that exists in our world. So there's three things about the darkness we're going to look at this morning. Darkness hates the light. Darkness does not properly fear the light. And the darkness seeks to destroy the light. So first... Darkness hates the light. I don't know about you, but when my biological clock tells me it's time for bed, I want the lights to be off. It's not infrequent. Happy and I are laying in bed at night, having a little pillow talk, and her lamp's on and my lamp's off, and I'll slowly start to raise my finger and grimace my face and just point at her lamp because I want it off. I want dark. (laughs) If you can't relate to that... You can certainly relate to laying there in the morning and the curtains being thrown open and the light flooding in or stepping out from a dark theater and the light is not a pleasant experience at that moment, but rather it's a terror. It's something that you want to have off. Well, that's what we see pictured here in the story of John the Baptist. It's a revulsion to light. To give a little background to this situation, this Herod whose 
First name is actually Antipas. Herod is the family name. That's not his first name. You'll find a lot of Herods mentioned in the gospel narratives, and there's a couple of them. The first is Herod the Great. This is the one that sought to kill baby Jesus. That's not the Herod we're talking about here. Then there was Herod the Great's first son. He's the one who was in charge when Mary and Joseph came back and then realized they need to flee to Egypt. That's his oldest son. Now this is another son who's in charge. This is Herod Antipas. And he is tetrarch or ruling governor of Galilee and Pera. Though he's not a king, he likes to think of himself as such and at times would have been called so. Well, the scandal of the day was that Herod was planning to divorce his current Wife. Now, that wouldn't have been the greatest scandal because the Jews did have categories for divorce and would allow for it. But what was the greater scandal was that he was planning to take for himself his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, whom he had had an affair with. Herodias planned to leave Philip and be joined to Antipas. This is where the big scandal comes in. Not only would Herodias be leaving her husband, but she'd be leaving her husband for her husband's brother. That was a big no. God had explicitly said no to such a thing per his Levitical law. And common sense would tell us this is a terrible situation as well. And so in the midst of this embroiled affair, John the Baptist was publicly rebuking Antipas and Herodias saying, verse 4, it's not lawful for you to have her. He's calling this public leader to account. John's simply speaking the truth. And therein lies the rub. Herodias and Herod did not want to hear the truth. They did not want to be confronted with their sin. John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance. He was calling people to acknowledge that their works were evil and to turn from these works of darkness towards the light of Christ, which was dawning. Yet we read in the Gospel of John that due to their sin, rather than joyfully turn toward the light, they, we left to ourselves, are repulsed by it. John writes, in his gospel, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Light and darkness cannot mix. As soon as light hits darkness, darkness is dispelled, and whatever was veiled in the darkness is exposed. So, in our sin, we hate the light because we do not want to have to be exposed to the revealing light of God's holiness. What was Adam and Eve's immediate response after they sinned? They hid, they sought to take cover, they did not want to be exposed to God. Herodias and Antipas did not want their evil works exposed. Yet John persisted in shining a light on this very public indiscretion, and he was hated for it. As believers, 
We are called to several things in this world as it pertains to the light of Christ. First, we're called to step into the light ourselves. The first step to receiving Christ and being back in joyful fellowship with our God the way that he intended it to be is to acknowledge that the darkness exists in our own hearts. The book of 1 John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's our job to throw ourselves in front of the sanctifying light of Jesus Christ. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to admit our faults and expose our sins. In fact, we cannot do it without the help of God's Holy Spirit. Yet God does give us the ability by His Spirit to do this. And He also gives us the promise that such acknowledgement of the darkness will not result in condemnation, but in fact will result in restoration. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to wrestle those dark areas of sin in our hearts out into the light. Before Christ and before our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we must continue to walk in the light of Christ. First John also reminds us that if we say we have fellowship with Jesus Christ while we walk in darkness, we will lie and do not practice the truth. When we come to Christ, we become people of the light, not of the dark. As believers, we must be people who love the light and hate the darkness. Not the other way around. We must believe that exposing the workings of evil in our own hearts brings us life and we must help others to do the same. Herod was doing a wicked thing. But the nail in Herod's coffin was not necessarily the sin he was currently doing but the fact that he refused to acknowledge and repent of that sin. If you're here and you've never done this, you've never allowed the healing light of God's holiness to shine into the darkest moments of your life or into your darkest thoughts, then I encourage you not to resist him. Letting the light of Christ shine into the darkness may be hard at first, like seeing the light when you step out of a darkened room, but once it breaks in and our eyes adjust, there is warmth and there is peace And there is joy and there is life that is given to us. Do not love the darkness rather than the light, but turn to the light. So that's the first thing we see. Darkness hates the light. But there's another big aspect of what takes place in our darkened hearts that we see here in this story. And particularly, I would say, in the man Herod. It's that... In the darkness of our hearts, we march to the beat of the wrong drum. We follow the wrong master. And we do this because we ultimately fear the wrong things. This is our second point. Darkness does not properly fear the light. What we see in Herod is a man who's afraid. But a man whose fears are misplaced. 
Scripture tells us that fear is the beginning of wisdom, but not just any fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, let me clarify what I mean here by fear. The fear that we're talking about is the motivational fear within us that drives us to do the things that we do. Ultimately, fear is a response to danger. And when fear is rightly used, it leads us to protection. To fear the Lord is to recognize that he alone is God. And that to spurn him is to reject eternal, holy perfection. The perfect creator of the universe. To reject him is to reject the one who can perfectly cleanse us, perfectly protect us, perfectly guide us. When we fear God rightly, we will follow his will and walk in his ways to our benefit. But what we see in Herod is a man who does not fear God. That's not because Herod is a man without fear. In fact, when we live in the dark, though we lack a proper fear of God, we find ourselves overcome with the fear of everything else. And when we fear things other than God, rather than our fear bringing us safely into the comfort and protection of this loving God of the universe, our fears drive us further from him. This is what we see in Herod. The story of John's execution begins like this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. At this point in Matthew's narrative, John the Baptist was already executed. So when we get the story of John, that's a flashback to fill us in on what's going on in Herod's mind in this moment. When Herod hears about the work of Christ, he's fearful. His guilty conscience betrays him and he begins to panic, wondering if this wonder worker was John raised from the dead. Surely out to get vengeance upon the one who had beheaded him. Herod is a fearful man, but he fears the wrong things. He has conflicting desires and varied allegiances. If you read the account of John's death in the Gospel of Mark, you get an even fuller picture of what's going on here. Here we have this man, Herod. He's a man of high statue in his community. He's decided to forsake his current wife in order to marry the wife of his brother. Well, we see this man rebuked by the faithful prophetic voice of John the Baptist. But in response to this, he's conflicted. In one sense, Herod actually does fear John. He fears the message of repentance that he's preaching. He sees that people in his region take John to be a prophet And in some ways, he's persuaded by them. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Herod himself did recognize that John was a righteous and holy man. We're told in Mark that Herod actually, at first, refused to have John killed because of this. And though his message was challenging and perplexing, Herod heard him gladly, we are told. We get a whiff of that in Matthew's description as well when it says that Herod was sorry 
when he did have John executed. Clearly, as well, Herod's guilty conscience continues to weigh on him, and he's burdened by the fact that he may have just put a holy man to death. So in a sense, he fears John and John's message. But the fear of John is not a saving fear. We're told even the demons believe and shudder in the presence of Christ. But their fear is purely a fear of God's power, not of a fear of separation from God. The fear of separation from God and what that means for us drives us back to him, protecting us from the just wrath that we deserve. So Herod has a type of fear of John and this message he's bringing, but not a saving fear that leads him to repent. Herod also fears offending and upsetting his future bride-to-be, Herodias. In both Matthew and Mark, it's clear that she is the one really steering the ship here. In Mark, we're told that she had a grudge against John because of what he was saying. And she wanted him put to death. And it's, in fact, this grudge that leads her to demand that his head be brought to her on a platter. Does Herod stand up to her? No, ultimately not. Matthew tells us that he had John seized and bound and put in prison for the sake of Herodias. He did this for her. She was demanding John's execution. So at the very least, he appeases her initially with John's imprisonment. When we read in verse 5 that he wanted to put John to death, that being Herod, I think even this is out of fear of Herodias. Why do I say this? Well, again, we're told in Mark that Herod didn't want to put John to death, at least in some way. And even here again in Matthew, we see that he's sorry when he does, but we also read this in Matthew that he wanted to. So what does that point to? Well, again, this points to a man who's torn and who's stumbling around in the dark, unsure of who or what to fear. In one sense, he doesn't want to put John to death because he sees that he's a righteous man. In another sense, he does want to put him to death because he's afraid of Herodias and he wants to make her happy. But his fear doesn't stop there. We see also that he fears the people. It seems he might have put John to death for the sake of Herodias, or he he might have done that for the sake of Herodias, but he doesn't initially. Why? Because he's afraid of how the people might react. So he's also afraid of the general public. If he kills John, he's going to be making himself public enemy number one. He goes further still. Once Herod watches this dance of his niece, that is his niece who's dancing in front of him, and swears an oath to give to her whatever she wishes and she requests on behalf of her mother John's head, Herod, we are told, because of his oath and his guests, follows through with it. Now, why is this? It wouldn't have been wrong for Herod to have broken this wicked oath. God would desire that act of repentance from him. Yet Herod is proud. He fears losing face in front of his guests. He fears looking weak or going back on his word. And so, out of fear of his guests, out of fear of his people, out of fear of John the Baptist, out of fear of Herodias, out of fear of losing face and taking a hit to his pride, Herod has John beheaded. 
a decision which clearly haunts him, which is not surprising for such a conflicted man. Herod is fearing all of the wrong things. This is what the darkness does within us. The darkness makes us afraid. But our fears in the dark, as we know, are so often misplaced. Suddenly, our basement becomes the stuff of nightmares just because the lights are turned off. Suddenly, we jump into bed so someone doesn't grab our ankles from underneath, even though we just saw there was no one under there. In the dark of the night, we become so easily irrational in the things that we fear. Herod should have feared. But the thing that Herod should have feared, God himself, he clearly didn't. For if Herod had feared God instead of the people, instead of Herodias, instead of his own pride, instead of just the rebuke of John, this situation would have turned out much differently. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. What we fear motivates us to act. And if the fear of anything else, monetary loss, loneliness, social rejection, and so on, if the fear of any of these things is greater than our fear of turning our backs on God, they will control us and we will run from him. Yet if we turn to Christ and we seek him, and fear God above all else, we are told that his perfect love then casts out all fear. When we stand in the right fear of God, then fear itself begins to fade away. No longer do the people or our reputation or lovers or pride carry the punch that they once did. They don't control us. And rather than looking like the tormented man with a guilty conscience like Herod, we can be at peace. The fear of this, that, and the other fades away. And we experience freedom and forgiveness in our God. The darkness within us fears the wrong things. And if there's not a proper fear of God in our hearts, then the darkness within us only has one option, and that is to try and eliminate the source of our fear, God. Darkness hates the light. Darkness does not properly fear the light. And in the end, what we are reminded of here is that darkness wants to destroy the light. The only hope that darkness has against light is that light would cease to exist. In the war of a dark room against a table lamp, the table lamp wins 100% of the time as soon as it's turned on. The only way the dark room will win in this scenario is if the table lamp's broken. This is ultimately Herodias' desire. She knows so long as John is alive, he will continue to speak the truth. And she wants him dead, eliminated. And this is the cosmic battle that we are all in. Sin is not looking for compromise and peaceful coexistence. Sin is waging a war against the light. 
We are told in the book of Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present, what darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are all, whether we recognize it or not, engaged in a war. And in this war, there are only two sides, darkness and light. Herod and Herodias, whether they realized it or not, fought on the side of darkness, waging war against the truth and seeking to put an end to the light. That's what darkness does. Do not be fooled. When we engage in sin in our lives, we aren't just toying with something. We aren't choosing to mess around with something, we're choosing to walk in darkness. And in that darkness, in that sin, it's not just a minor infraction, but it is wholesale rejection of the light. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just as oil and water do not mix, neither do light and darkness. To receive the truth, to follow Christ, and to obey his word, to repent of our sin is to forsake the dark and to put to death the works of darkness. If we are not actively seeking to mortify the evil desires of our flesh and the sin that still remains within us, then the sin within us will actively be working to put to death whatever light we have. You may think, oh, well, this little sin isn't a huge deal or this little sin isn't hurting anyone, but sin is never satisfied with what you give it. You cannot contain it. It will grow, it will hunger, and it will seek to devour you if you do not seek to mortify it. Herodias hated the light because she loved the dark. And she had John killed. When we sin, in that moment, we're hating the light and loving the dark. May that not be so of us, church. Our passage ends without resolution. We see the disciples of John take his body and bury it, and then they go and tell Jesus. If this was the only passage of Scripture that we had, we might ask, did evil just win? Did darkness overcome the light? Fortunately, this is not the only passage of Scripture that we have. Matthew has already testified to the fact, as does the rest of the Scriptures, that no, darkness does not win. Darkness has never stood a chance against the light of God. Psalm 139 says, Even the darkness is not dark to you, O God. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. There is no darkness in God. God is absolutely sovereign over everything, and darkness flees in his presence. Just as darkness cannot compete with the bright glory of the sun, so too evil can never overcome the glory of God. And though God allowed humanity to give themselves over to the dark, he always had a plan 
to shine the bright light of his victorious, redemptive glory on the world. Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jesus says he is the light of the world. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Christ came on a mission to break forth the glorious light of the kingdom of God on this earth and into the hearts of men that we might be free from the terror of darkness. We've been watching this light burst forth throughout the gospel of Matthew. Jesus healing, delivering, teaching, people's lives being changed. The kingdom has arrived. And when God makes us his own, we are told he delivers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're told that once we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. We're told that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We are told in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We are told this world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We are told that one day the darkness will finally once for all be defeated and that those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls will walk in the perfect presence of God for all of eternity. Where there will be no more need for a son because we will stand in the perfect fulfilling light of his glorious perfection. This is the hope that we have. One day, all of the darkness that we see and feel and read about, all of the darkness that we experience that opposes us as we stand for Christ, all of the darkness that we feel and experience in our own souls, one day that darkness will once for all be cast out. Never again will there be anything that goes bump in the night. We will never read another story like this of man's wickedness. We will walk in perfect unity with our God. Church, let's be people who love the light. People who love our Lord. People who know that this darkness is ending. Who don't fear what we don't need to fear who know that Christ will one day reign in final victory over every dark power, including our sin. This is certain. This is sure. And in this, we can rejoice. We have nothing to fear. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that though we live, as the old hymn says, in a world with devils filled, including the darkness of our own sins, Father, you have shown your glorious light on us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you continued in your mercy to send prophets, to send a word to us. Thank you for sending John, preaching the message of repentance, preparing the way for the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that though John was beheaded, that was not the end of the story for John. That's not the end of the story for us. Thank you that though Jesus, as we will see throughout Matthew, marches towards the cross and hangs there, thank you, God, that on the third day he rose again from the dead. Thank you that he overcame every sin within our hearts. Thank you that he has overcome the world and that his kingdom has been growing and expanding and light is being shown. Help us to be messengers of this truth. Help us to shine the light of Christ into this world. And Lord, I just pray right now, if there be any darkness in our souls we've been clinging to, help us to expose it to the light. Help us to live in the freedom that Christ offers us. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your word. We pray all of this in the name of your glorious son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.